All right, hey, church family, and hey, other West North Carolina campuses. One of the things that uh, we do at the end of every single service, whatever location you're at, is we say that you are loved and you are sent. And uh, we do that on purpose. It's to instill a value uh, into our church, a culture into our church, that not only does God love you, you are loved by God's people, but uh, after we are saved, then we are sent out. And usually what that means is uh, you go out to live missionally, or maybe we're starting a new campus in a different part of Western North Carolina, um, but today has a little bit more of a uh, kind of a special organic uh, feel. As, as was mentioned earlier, uh, we have been a part in some way of 150 church plants around the world, uh, but there's one that feels particularly special today uh, because what we're going to do today is we're going to commission uh, Coastway Church. All right, Coastway Church is going to be starting in the Conway, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina area here in the not-too-distant uh, future, and the, uh, the lead pastor of that is our own Jeremy Woods. This is Jeremy. And uh, Victoria Woods, and this is their beautiful little daughter, uh, Eleanor, and a little bit real quickly, uh, Jeremy has been with us 11 years. He is... He started as a uh, started as an intern. I think that's when we played basketball when I held you so bad, right? Okay, so we played, so eleven years ago he was an intern, uh, or actually before that he was a volunteer. Then he was an intern, and then after doing an internship, then he was a college minister, and then after that he was actually the the founding campus pastor when we launched the West uh, Asheville uh, Church, and he is now the church planter uh, in residence. And um, again, and, and behind me and on the screen uh, are the team that are going to help him, the launch team that are going to help. Him. One of the things we talk about uh, all the time uh, is being strategic and where we plant churches. Again, whether that's in Quito, Ecuador, or whether that be in Atlanta, Georgia, or here in Myrtle Beach. And a couple things you might or might not know about Myrtle Beach. Uh, we think that Western North Carolina is growing fast. There's almost 50, I think there's 46 people every single day are moving uh, to, uh, to Myrtle Beach. 75% of the people there do not attend a local church. 75%, the national average is around 52%. Uh, just in the doorsteps, right in the shadow of where Coastway Church is going to be, uh, there's 11,000 11, students at uh, Coastal Carolina as well. And so here's what I want to ask you to do as a church. Obviously, uh, you and I, we're going to be supporting them as uh, we launch them out over the next couple of years. You're going to be playing a generosity role. Uh, you're also going to be, obviously, we'll be going down there, maybe helping with like VBSs and all that kind of stuff. But also, one of the things we prayed for and that Jeremy and Victoria prayed for is what we call, what we've been calling the 2515. What that means is that there will be 25 people that would move to Myrtle Beach to help them launch, all right? And there'll be 50 people that are there waiting for them, but 25 that would launch out from where they live and then move there. And uh, you see some of those folks again behind me. You see some of those folks on the screen. Is that Right now, there are 24 people, all right? There's 24 people. Now, Biltmore Church, I cannot help but to think, all right? God is telling one of you, or maybe you're online and you're watching, you're like, hey, I like the beach, all right? I can live where I want to. It's a mobile society. And I've been wondering what God wants me to do. Well, here's a word from God. God wants you to move to the beach. What an awesome word for you to hear on a Sunday, all right? It's God's word for you. In all seriousness, um, if you've been thinking, okay, what does God have for me? And maybe you're a recently graduated, you're about to graduate from college, maybe you're a retired couple, and you're like, you know what, we love the mountains, and if you can't live in the mountains, the second place to live besides the mountains, all right, is the beach, all right, so live for the glory of God, live strategically for the mission of God, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, you would live strategically for the mission of God, and so if it ends up being like six or ten people, and you go from the 25 plan to the 
35 plan, we're good with that as well. So, um, all, hey, where do they go if, they, if they're interested in doing that? What's the, uh, I forgot to get Coast, the. Coastwaychurch.com. Coastwaychurch.com. I promise you will get a response, all right? So before we uh, jump into God's word, two things. Uh, I'm gonna pray, you pray with me, and then I want you to just affirm them and affirm their team, because um, we're giving our best, all right? I mean, I love Jeremy Woods, all right? Jeremy and I have been together, again, for uh, over a decade now. It's been awesome to watch him grow. It's been awesome to watch him meet the Victoria. It's been awesome. And by the way, for the longest time, I think it's like five years, I called her Veronica, and she never corrected me. And even now, I'm like, hello, Eleanor, how you doing? That's that's what I am. I still still choke just a little bit. But we're sending our best, our chairman of deacons, all right, Mike and Tracy Hensley, they are also moving to Myrtle Beach. So it's not somebody else out there. It's, it's, it's the Christian who loves God and just wants to obey God and live for the mission of God. So that very well could be you, all right? Coastwaychurch.com, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Woods and their team. Uh, thank you for the call you've had on their life. Thank you that we got a chance these last 11 years to play a role in uh, Jeremy's life and in Victoria's life and Eleanor's life. Thank you so much. It's great to do life together, do ministry together. We've seen many, many victories over the last 11 years, and we cannot wait to hear what you do in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. God, we pray for the glory of God. You would set Coastway Church on fire, and we would see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people repent and embrace Jesus by faith, and we would just hear stories and video clips and all these great stories that we get to see just in the state right beside us about for the glory of God, people being saved day after day after day. So God, provide at least that one more person. But God, we're praying for more than that. And God, we pray for that 50 plus people down there to greet them and that that church, when it launches, it would just launch in an amazing, amazing way. God, we pray that you would bring revival on the campus of Coastal Carolina and you would equip a generation of college students that so many of them right now have no idea who you are, but you created them, you love them. We pray that you would save them and we pray that you would send them and team them up with Coastway Church. My God, we're gonna hold the ropes back here and pray, provide, go down there and help. But we love you. We wanna commission them now for the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom in Jesus' name, amen. All right, put your hands together. Give a big round of applause. Love you guys. Love you guys. Great job. All right, church. No better text also to uh, look at, I don't think, today. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel, all right? The book of Daniel. Now, the book of Daniel, I know, is very intimidating. Uh, It's actually kind of the the back half is intimidating. The first half is in some ways easier to kind of see yourself in just a little bit. But Daniel chapter 1 is where we're going to be. And let me do a couple of things on the front end. First of all, as we emerge from the pandemic, the ministries start to ramp up a little bit. And one of the key cogs, if you will, in our discipleship process at Biltmore Church is what are called starting point dinners or starting point lunches, all right? This is the way that you can find out, hey, is this a good fit for you? Um, how do I plug in? How do I find a small group? What about a ministry that I need to be a part of? And we have got starting point, either lunches or dinners, starting up at all seven campuses sometime in the next month, all right? So whatever campus you're on, just go to BiltmoreChurch.com backslash starting points, and you will be able to find out the date that you're on and when that is and how do you register and, you know, all the stuff. There's childcare. There's a great meal at every, every single one. And if you're watching online as well and you're from Western North Carolina, man, it's, 
Let's jump back in, all right? If it's a health issue, man, stay home and be safe. If it's a habit issue, let's jump back in and be involved in a local church. And by the way, if you're still watching from everywhere, from you know, Atlanta to London to all those places, man, let us help continue to shepherd you during these crazy, crazy times. But a couple of people want to say hello to watching online. Barbara from Arden, North Carolina. All right, I got a great church I can recommend to you in Arden. All right, Ben from Buffalo, New York. All right, Ben, I got nothing in Buffalo, all right? I got nothing at all, but we will, find, we will help find that, all right? Go Bills. All right, Tina from Rochester, New York. Thinking a campus needs to be up there. And then Miriam. Miriam is what? Give her a round of, she's watching from Sweden today, all right? So give, give our online folks a, uh, a hello for that. And again, the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel is where we're going to be. One of the things, if you're a sports guy or a sports lady, is you understand what it's talking about when somebody says, oh, you know what? They have the home field advantage or they're a visiting team. When you talk about home field advantage or home court advantage, what you're talking about is if you are playing on your own field or you're playing in your own arena, what you understand is you have got an advantage over the visiting team. Now, it can vary based on, you know, how much crowd support you have, how kind of weird is your particular venue. But what they say is it can give, it actually, they can, they can calculate, it actually gives points. There are tangible advantages that they can then say, this metric, this team is this much better, this much stronger when they're at home. On the other hand, it'll say when a visiting team comes in here whether it be because the referee's intimidated by the crowd or whether it be, again, the familiarity of the surroundings for the home team, what they say is, you know, you walk into a home field advantage and you are the visiting team. You're going in on somebody else's turf. It can be very, very intimidating. Matter of fact, I looked up the loudest college football stadiums in America. And right down the road at number two, is Clemson University, all right? 133 decibels, all right? So don't ever complain about the volume at our church if you go to a Clemson game, all right? We never even come close to 133, but 133 decibels, and it's a home field advantage. You're like, what's your point? My point is this. When we look at the book of Daniel, here's something that is becoming crystal clear. The church in the West, the church in America is increasingly finding itself finding herself in an away game. You are increasingly being thought of as being on someone else's turf. One of the developments, uh, one of the good developments of the 20th and 21st centuries is the explosive growth of the church in non-Western societies. There's the vast majority, I don't know if you know this, not the vast majority of Christians live in the vast majority of growth has not just been evangelical and a Pentecostal, but at minimum 70% of all Christians today live outside of the West. The most explosive growth is happening in places like Africa and China and even the Middle East. But in our country, in the US, Christianity, which for a long time enjoyed the home field advantage, cultural acceptance for most of our country's history has seen the culture change dramatically even in the last generation or two. Statistically, more than two-thirds of the churches in the United States have plateaued or are in decline. While religion was once broadly seen as a social good or at minimum benign, 
Increasing numbers of people now see the church as bad for people and a major obstacle to, quote, social progress. Traditional beliefs, Christian beliefs about sexuality and gender are being viewed as dangerous and restrictive of people's basic civil rights. And the book of Daniel is about how do you, as a Jesus follower, remain faithful in a culture that stands in many ways in opposition to you? How do you stay faithful? How do you stay faithful to the Bible? How do you stay faithful to what God says? How do you stay faithful to be a great grace-filled witness in a culture that doesn't like anything that you stand for? And so the book of Daniel uh, actually covers 69 years. We're gonna see today Daniel is a teenager, somewhere between 13 and 17, let's just call it 15. So Daniel and his friends are teenagers, they're middle schoolers, they're high schoolers, and the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel is in his 80s. Daniel does not withdraw from the culture. He does not withdraw from the culture, hang around with other believers until Jesus comes back. But nor does he conform to the culture. What he does is you'll see he engages the culture and then God uses him. And so I cannot think of a more appropriate, more timely place in the Bible for us to look right now. How do you have a faithful Christian testimony in a culture that is increasingly hostile to you, opposed to you? And that means you as a public school teacher. That means you as a businessman or a businesswoman. That means you even in some cases in your family or how are you as an employer or as an employee? Now there's a small percentage of us that we work in Christian Christian organizations. You work at the church or you work at the Cove or you work at least in a general Christian-based organization, but that is a tiny, tiny percentage of us today. The question for the vast majority of us as a disciple, how do I live faithfully? How do I live faithfully in a culture that is increasingly hostile to everything that I stand for? We have tons of bad examples. Let's look at a good example. His name is Daniel. So we're gonna walk through the text and then we'll do some principles at the uh, kind of the, the last part of it, but let's kind of get the context and we'll do a little commentary as we go along. Daniel chapter one, verses one and two. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Jehoiakim, just, just to understand, is a terrible king. He's like the 17th king of Israel and he's a terrible king. He's terrible. He's a terrible leader. He's selfish. He is crooked. He leads the people away from the Lord. He has no backbone at all. So Jehoiakim is a terrible king. And second guy you need to kind of know, and this is kind of the one you need to understand in this story, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. We don't have time to unpack this, but the Lord gave. The Lord disciplined. The Lord gave his people into this pagan nation's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, which is another name for Babylon, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So here's what's going on. What's going on is God's people had ignored God for 490 years. For 490 years, God had said, do this. And they're like, no, do this, no. Follow this, I won't. Obey here, forget it, 
okay? This is like the parent who's like, stop doing that. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. I'm gonna count to three, and if you don't stop after the count of three, you're in trouble, okay? God is a patient God. God counts to 490. But 490 years is up. And so he uses a pagan nation named Babylon is basically his uh, wooden spoon, if you will. Okay, some of you are like, okay, I don't know about you. When I grew up, the way that uh, my dad would use a belt, but my mom would use a wooden spoon. Wooden spoon <laughs> stung, all right? It stung. And this is, Babylon is God's instrument of discipline in this day and time. Now, one last thing, Babylon, you gotta understand, Babylon is both a particular place as well as a mindset. It is a particular place. It is in what is now what we would call modern day Iraq. But it's also a sphere. It's a spiritual realm, if you will. In the Bible, Babylon also represents a counterfeit spiritual power. It's at work virtually in every secular kingdom. In the New Testament, Christians actually called Rome, even though Rome was way away from the city of Babylon called Rome Babylon just because they were opposed to God. So in other words, when you see Babylon, it, almost all the time it's opposite of God, it's man in charge, it's anti-gospel. The point is, most of you are like Daniel. You are called to live, you are called to live and serve in Babylon. That's where you're called to live, in a place that doesn't support what you believe. Again, whether that's the hospital, the public school, your neighborhood, and Daniel shows us, how do you not just survive and hang on, but how do I thrive and glorify God in the midst of Babylon? So verse three and four. It says, the king, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So here, real quickly as we move through this, here's what's happening. He says the chief eunuch or the chief official is the one that's in charge of indoctrinating these guys. And so what happens is they believed in basically subjugation by assimilation. So when they would go in, Babylon would go in and conquer a nation. They would kill a lot of the folks, but then they would look at the, the best and the brightest, right? They would look at the ones that had the most social standing and they would take them back to serve in Babylon. So kind of it's like they would pick the Ivy League schools, you know, the super smart, the high IQ, the high EQ, you know, like Princeton and Harvard. Harvard and Texas Tech and those like really, really, really awesome schools. And then he would take them back and say, I'm going to indoctrinate you. I'm going to give you a three-year program so you can learn. You can learn about our culture and they can be assimilated into the Babylonian culture. Now, what you got to understand is we're going to alienate you from the word of God. We're going to forbid you to speak your native tongue. We're going to forbid you to speak Hebrew. They're going to make them eunuchs, which also again crushes their future as parents and then here's how the story goes on. Verse five, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. 
Among these, and here are four guys, all right? Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. All right, if you grew up and you're, you're not new to Bible study, you're like, oh, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, that's, it's funny. We remember those three pagan names, but we also remember Daniel's uh, Jewish name. And so it's like, among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So go to one more verse. Let me get verse seven. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now we're gonna come back to this, but here's what they're trying to do. They're trying to change their identity by changing their names. Those first names were good Hebrew Jewish names that had a vision for what their parents wanted them to be. But when they're trying to assimilate them into the culture, they give them pagan names, names that said, I want you to forget who you are. They had those good Hebrew names, but then they gave them labels to confuse them, reorient their culture, all that stuff around the Babylonian culture. Now, again, if you are not new to Bible study, here's the fear in this story. You have seen these on like flannel graphs or you've seen these in children's story or you've seen these in veggie tales or whatever, and you forget that these were real people. These were real teenage boys who had seen their homeland invaded. They had seen their families killed. They had seen the temple desecrated. They had seen their futures as fathers and husbands destroyed and their names had been changed to give praise to a pagan God. So before you think, man, I've got a tough at Borg Warner or man, I've got a tough at Mission or whatever, it's not as tough as what they had. It's just not. And so when we look at all of this, look at, uh, look at verse eight, and here's, here's what you start to see where Daniel's response is. But Daniel resolved, this res- word resolved, it's, a, it's the idea of conviction. It's the idea of there is a time to make a stand. You don't die on every hill, but this was a hill he was willing to die on. And he's like, I am gonna make a, I'm gonna resolve to not disobey God. And so it says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked, note this, he didn't act like a jerk. He didn't go on Facebook and trash his boss. What he did is he's like, I'm gonna ask the chief of the eunuchs, that's the guy that's his boss, that's the guy that's in charge of helping him to stand before the king to allow him not to defile himself. Now, a couple of contextual things here. The king's food is what he says would defile him. So if you're like, what was it that would defile him? And to be honest, it doesn't clearly say, but there's probably three different ways. The easiest way to understand this is more than likely the stuff on the king's table was forbidden for a Jewish boy that was adhering to the Torah, to the Mosaic law. Just think, you know what? I've been taught that that's wrong. It's in the Bible. I can't do that. Second thing that maybe is in play here as well is in that day and time, if you sat down and you ate somebody else's food, you were approving of them. They were your close friend. It's like, man, whatever they're about, I'm about. But either way, what he said is, I cannot do that. I cannot do that. And so the first clear test of faith, it wasn't, he couldn't do anything about being taken prisoner, couldn't do anything about getting his name changed. But when it came to this, this was the first clear test. And the test was, Am I gonna be guided by the Bible or am I gonna be guided by Babylon? Am I gonna be guided by the Bible or am I going to be guided by Babylon? Now, loved ones, one of the things we talked about at length as we walked through this passage, at length, some of the stuff that Christians historically and in the last 20 years have tended to die on, some of the stuff that Christians have said, I'm taking my stand are not clear biblical commands, they're personal preferences. 
But when you do read the scriptures, you are going to get offended at some point. And we've said it, scripture offends all cultures of all times in all different ways. I mean, if you look at the scriptures and you take them very, very seriously, for example, if you look at the scriptures teaching on the sanctity of marriage, that is gonna offend some cultures. If you look at the scriptures teaching about forgiveness of people who have hurt you, that's gonna offend other people. If you look at the scriptures teaching about, you know what, we have been made in the image of God. We can't just kind of pick how we're gonna identify with, that's gonna offend somebody else. Now, loved ones, our point is this. It is not to look out into the marketplace and say, you know what, I see sin in the marketplace. As always, God's people are first to look first at the sin in the mirror. And if it's not about identification over here, or if it's not about marriage over here, I promise you right now, for a lot of us that are listening right now, it may be not about marriage, and it's maybe not about identification, it's about money, it's about something else, that when you and I look in this book, we are not doing it. So um, he asked permission, showed respect. There's no guarantee he's gonna get a good response. There is no guarantee he's gonna get a good response. So let me put it in your terms. There is no guarantee if you honor God in your workplace that God is actually going to protect you from consequences. Daniel did not know how his boss would respond. All Daniel knew is his name means God is my judge. And what he knew is I have to play to an audience of one. I have one that I am gonna stand in front of and he has told me clearly to not do this with this food And so I'm gonna go ahead, I'm not gonna be a jerk. I'm just gonna ask, listen, I'm asking, please don't don't make me defile myself in front of God. If the boss had acted differently, we don't know what Daniel would have done. But bottom line is he honored God. And in this case, God chose to honor that choice by giving him favor. Again, if you're gonna make that stand, make the stand. The consequences are up to God. Sometimes God says, hey, Favor, you get a raise. Other times, you get fired. Hebrews chapter 11, it says, and God rescued some out of the lion's mouth and other people got sawn in two. Both of them obeying God. So, into the story. Verse nine. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of uh, the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? In other words, hey, I got a job to do. I'm trying to get you healthy. You got to stand in front of the king. If I put you in front of the king and I've kind of gone against his instructions that I'm going to get in trouble. So here's what happens. So you would endanger my head with the king. So here's what Daniel ends up saying. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Dan, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Just so you know, this is not about, I mean, man, God bless you if you wanna do the Daniel fast, that's fine. The point of this text is not so that you could be like keto or this is not the point that you can sit there and go, oh, this is a great way for me to leave my little corn tummy. That's not the whole, that's not the point of the passage. The point is, Apparently, this was the only type on the menu that would not defile him, all right? So again, if you wanna do that, that's great. God bless you, all right? Um, here's, here's the test, though. It says, then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. 
So he listened to them in this matter, tested them for 10 days, and then two more verses. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. That day and time, that was a good thing. Then all the youths who ate the king's food, and then it kind of fast forwards a little bit to standing in front of the king, and here's the end of the story. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, in other words, he's quizzing them, he found them 10 times, literally 10 hands better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his, in his kingdom. All right, so you look at a story like this, and the question you always ask of a Bible story is, all right, what did it mean then, and then what does it mean to me now? What is the principle that God was trying to get across back then, and then what is he trying to tell me now? So the question is, how do I make a difference? How do I make a difference by being different in my Babylon, in my school, at my business. Now again, when I say be different, I'm not talking about being weird, all right? I'm not talking about being intentionally goofy. I'm not talking about being like John Lithgow and Footloose and, and making a stand on something the Bible doesn't make a stand on. That's not what we're talking about, all right? What we're talking about is how can I be distinctively different and make a difference in the culture God has put me in? And in studying this and studying this and studying this all week, two things just jumped out. First one we talk about repeatedly, because to me it is absolutely key if you're gonna stand in Babylon. And here's the first one, is you've gotta understand that you have and you have been given, if you're in Christ, you have been given a different identity. You've been given a different identity. Changing their names in that ancient culture was trying to change the person's core identity. Here's what their names meant in Hebrew. Daniel meant God is my judge. Hananiah meant Yahweh is gracious. Mishael meant none like my God. And Azariah meant God is my helper. In other words, their parents said, okay, this is what your life is gonna be about. You have a gracious God. You have a God that will help you. You have a God that you will stand in front of one day to give an account for what you have done. And so they get these boys over there and they say, first thing we gotta do, first thing we gotta do in the school of Babylon is to change their identity. We got to take out that God identity that has been instilled in them for 15 years and we've got to replace it on all those names. Those names were like about the moon God. It was a, they're going from a monotheistic society into a polytheistic society. And so the whole, was, whole thing was, it's not about the one God you served. It's not about the, your parents' God. It is about, it's about the culture. It's about, it's about anything but exclusivity. And uh, this is not new. Uh, the Germans in World War II, when they took the Jews into the concentration camps, one of the things they would do is this, right off the bat, they would take their name away from them. They would take their name away from them and they would issue them a number. They would shave their head, take their hair, they would take their shoes, and they initially would put a number on a, like a kind of a uniform. In other words, to say, you know what? This is about as bad a situation as you can be in, all right? You're not who you thought you were. You're not how you were grew up. You can't get in a worse situation. We're gonna take your hair. We're gonna take your shoes. Now we're gonna take your name. You don't even have a name anymore, okay? You're not Jacob anymore. You're 17416. That's who you are. You're not Jacob, all right? You're not Daniel. You're not Ishmael, you're not that person anymore. We're going to take that away from you. And uh, Daniel, apparently in here, again, God is my judge, I live for an audience of one. His parents in that 15 years, which is by the way, parents, if you have teenagers, uh, you are like the Indy car, okay? Your job as a parent is to, you're the pace car, you're the pace car, but as they get older, you've got to, your goal is I gotta be able to pull off the racetrack and they've gotta be able to drive on their own. 
which is one of the reasons why we say all the time, get the student in the student ministry. It's not one week a year, it's not two weeks a year, but if they will sit in there for two years, they'll understand who they are, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for them, why there's veracity in the scriptures, so that when you've got to pull off of the pace car and they've got to go on their own, they know how to stand. And they don't get shellacked when they go to UNC or they go to Duke or someplace and some professor challenges them. Why? Because they've been equipped. Now listen, that's not going to happen in a week at student camp. That happens over a couple of years of some discipleship. But the point is the same. And so when it comes to you, your identity is your core. When you look in the mirror and you ask the question, the deepest question, who am I? The good news of the gospel, you got to hear this. The good news of the gospel is when you embrace Christ through repentance and faith, he gives you a new life, he gives you a new heart, and he gives you a new identity. And so the gospel is the fact that you are not what you have done. You're not what you've done. Whatever that is, you're not what you've done. If you are in Christ, you're not your divorce, you're not your abortion, you're not your failure, you're not what you've done. You are what Jesus has done. So we talk about it over and over and over again. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as, that's the biggest thing that happened to me. If you're in Christ, that's not the biggest thing that happened to you. The biggest thing that happened to you is Jesus convicted you, saved you, and gave you a new identity. And so what we gotta talk about is uh, the reason a lot of us won't make a testimony is because you forget your identity. The reason a lot of times you're with your buddies at the club and you can't stand up when they start going away from the Lord or they start challenging you is because you don't think your identity is in Christ first. You bought into it, it's your prosperity, it's your this, it's your popularity. What will they think if they reject me? It's not just students, all right, it's adults. I mean, think about it. Think about the witness protection program the government does. If somebody's about to testify against some bad dude, even before they testify, they make sure they're safe. But if you testify against like the mafia or somebody, you testify and then what do they do? Man, they put you in witness protection. They find a new place for you to live. They find new identification for you and your family. And all practical purposes, your whole identity in the past is done away with. That's no longer you. You've got a new identity. In the same way, if you're gonna make a difference in Babylon, if you're gonna be different in Babylon, if you're gonna testify, the enemy's gonna wanna bring up, that's your identity. And you have to understand, in the gospel, I've been given a new identity, a new name, a new heart, new motives, new desires, new abilities. I'm not that person I used to be. And what happens is Daniel understood that. You know what's the coolest thing about the whole story? Even though they gave Daniel and these guys new names, Daniel never referred to himself by that new name they gave him. He never referred to himself as Belteshazzar. He doesn't. He's like, my name's Daniel. Why? Because he understood who he was. He understood his identity. And if, you, if you're going to stand in Babylon, you've got to understand who you are. Because here's the bottom line is, the way you see yourself in the gospel will end up showing itself in your activity. Some of you are like, wow, why are you always doing all this identity stuff? Because your identity ends up showing up in your activity. This is a theme throughout the Bible. God says, this is what I've done, and then this is how you're supposed to behave in lieu of that or in light of that. Classic example, John chapter 8, woman caught in adultery. What happens? Those religious people, they come out and they drag her and they throw her in front of Jesus. And at the very end, he's like, where are your, where are your condemners? Where are your condemners? They're, no, they, they're gone. I, don't, I can't wait to heaven to figure out, what Jesus right in the sand? I mean, that's going to be so awesome. I think he wrote their names. But 
whatever. Okay, but remember what he said? He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. That's identity. You're not condemned. That's Romans 8.1. If you're in Christ, you're not condemned. Neither do I condemn you, but here's your activity. Go and sin no more. Okay. The reason a lot of us, we don't have a lot of change in our activity is because we have not really changed in our identity. Because why? Babylon's going to change you by slapping a label on you. And today, this is so obvious, you were labeled either by your politics, your addictions, your economic situation, your prosperity, your, what, you know, your marital status, your marital failure or success. And you've got to understand, Jesus is the one that gets to tell me who I am. And you've got to understand, if I'm in Christ, I am forgiven. I'm a beloved son or daughter. I'm more than a conqueror. I am gifted. I am blessed. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I have been set free. I am not condemned. I've been given a new heart. And you've got to say, that's who I am. That's who I am. Because if not, your activity is not going to change. A true story. Uh, true story. There was a, the royal family's been in the news a little bit lately. So stories told of the Queen of England trying to get her daughter to sit still. She started the way most parents start. Young lady, be still. Be still. Young lady was still for just a, a little bit. Then she started wiggling again. I said, be still. And nothing worked, nothing worked. She just kept wiggling. Finally, she said, young lady, be still. Don't you know who you are? In other words, you are a princess. Why don't you act like it? And the little girl got the message because the queen tied her daughter's behavior to her identity. And so I can tell you to stop doing something all day long, but until you tie it to your identity, made possible through the gospel, all it's gonna be is just like kind of, Taping stuff together, taping stuff together, taping stuff together. So when the heat gets on at Babylon, you got to have a new identity. And let me just say it's going to go to this. There will be a different value system if you're on Team Jesus. Let's just let's, let's cut right to the chase. Here's the deal. There's three groups in this story. On one group, it's pretty obvious. you got Team Jesus, okay? Those are the four guys. That's Team Jesus, you definitely got Team Babylon, that's Nebuchadnezzar, all right? Even Jehoiakim to some degree, but that's Team Babylon over here, that's Nebuchadnezzar. What you don't see, but what is prevalent in the story is in between Team Jesus and Team Babylon, you got Team Reversible Jersey. Right in the middle, you got the Team Reversible, because you think those are the only four they took from, from Judah? No, they took thousands of others, but only four of them stood. These other ones are like, Reversible jersey. When I'm in Babylon, I can put my Babylon jersey on. But when I'm with my church people, I can put my team Jesus on. Question is, question is, which team are you on? Which team are you on? Augustine said, you can tell what team you're on. He basically said, you can tell the distinction between team Jesus. I'm paraphrasing between team Jesus and team Babylon. by looking at three big things. Here's three big things you can tell. He said the, the big three and the way that Christians look at these three sets them apart from the culture that they're trying to reach. And it's money, sex, and power. So let's just go there for a second. Money. How did Babylon see money? I mean, Babylon approaches money from the standpoint of get all you can, can all you get, Sit on the can. That's what it is. That's, that's what it is. Let's just get all this stuff. Let's get it there. Maybe, just maybe, 
if I feel bad, I like sponsor compassion child just to kind of assuage my guilt just a little bit. And a lot of times people will look at stuff in the Old Testament, you know, definite blind spots for sure. Definite blind spots. They'll look at polygamy in the, in the Old Testament. It's like, man, how did they do that? I mean, God obviously said not to do it. What a blind spot. Got a bunch of blind spots down through history. Obviously, you've got some Christians way back a couple hundred years ago that were like taking Bible passages out of context to try to prove something about slavery. It's like, all right, the Bible says it's okay. That is absolutely not true. We've talked about that before. You know what our blind spot is? My conviction is our blind spot in our day and time in the West, in the U.S. right now, in the year 2021, without a doubt, is money. 3% of Christians, 3% of professing Christians but the way, Christians give 3% on average to any charitable work whatsoever in the United States. Let me say that again. Christians, professing Christ followers, give 3% to any charitable. I'm talking about everything from ballet to the YMCA to Campus Crusade to Fellowship of Christian Athletes, much less the church. And so... I mean, let's just say it. That team in between, listen, I love you, but here's the bottom line is some of us actually, we spend more in a year going to the beach than we do to anything kingdom related. Listen, just so you know, we're over 100% of budget, so this is not about a money thing. This is about, you know what, which kingdom are you a part of? If you can say, man, there's nothing wrong with the mouse. There's nothing wrong with the mouse. All right, go see the mouse. All right, go see the mouse. That's fine. Have, enjoy it. That's fine. Save some. That's fine. Put a new deck out back. Nothing wrong with that. Drive a sweet car. Nothing wrong with that at all. As long as somewhere in there, your life is marked by generosity. So again, uh, if somebody, I'll just leave you the, if somebody were to look just at nothing else, it used to be you could say, looked at your checkbook. Nobody uses a checkbook anymore. So somebody would just look at your expenses. Which team would they say you're on? Just which team? Would they look at that and say, man, she's on Team Jesus? Some of them are like, nope, she's on Team Babylon. Money. Sex. Almost we're going to spend a ton of time and ton of time on this because there's such a great in our, in our day and time right now. But here's the nutshell of what it is. In Babylon, as it is now, when it comes to sex, the basic cultural argument is, listen, it is about me. It is about me. It is a, if it feels good, it cannot be wrong. It is consumer-based. It is transactional-based. It is, you know what, this is the way I want to be, so that's the way I'm going to that's what I want to be, even if it's not hurting anybody, even, even if I use you as a transaction, that's what, that's what it is. The Christian sexual ethic is the most empowering sexual ethic. Even if you go back to Rome, if you go back to Rome, the sexual ethic in Rome is the men, by the way, the men could sleep with whoever they wanted. The women had to be faithful to their husband or be kicked out on the street. That's why Christianity has always lifted up women. It has always done that. And so when it comes to this, the Christian sexual ethic is this was a gift of God, a gift of God between two people, a man and a woman in a covenant relationship called marriage. 
And uh, so again, could somebody look at the way that you treat sex, the gift of God, and say, that guy's on team Jesus, she's on team Jesus. Let me give you a third one, the power. In Babylon, the way they treated power is very much like we treat it here in the West. You know what? I've been given power, whether that be money, influence, position, prestige, popularity, or whatever. I use that stuff to my advantage. I lift me up. It is about me. Jesus is our leader. What does he say? A great leader is to serve and it is to lift people up. Nothing wrong with having ambition. Nothing wrong with doing things with excellence. Nothing wrong, again, with godly ambitions. Like, man, I want to do something great for God. The Bible does not teach laziness. The Bible does not teach being lackadaisical. But the Bible teaches, you know what? As God blesses me, I'm going to bless some other people. I'm not going to step on people to try to get me ahead. And so here's some questions of, what would your employer say? What would your employer say about the way that uh, you work? When Pastor Jason hit it good a couple of weeks ago talking about, you know what, your work says a lot about who you work for. If you work for Team Jesus and you understand you are to do things in, with great enthusiasm, you're not gonna do slouchy work. You're not gonna be coming in at nine o'clock when you're supposed to be there at eight o'clock. You're not gonna put that ichthus on the back of your van and do terrible work. Is anybody else tired of a plumber or whoever slapping that ichthus on there, slapping Jesus on there, and then doing terrible work and overcharging. If that's what you're gonna do, fine. Just put a Team Babylon sticker on there and take your Team Jesus sticker off of there. That's all we're asking. And if you're an employee, if you're an employer, do you take care of your employees? Do you pay them a good wage? Do you actually show concern for them and for their family and make sure they have time off if they have a baby? Do you actually get into their personal life to say, listen, it's not just about what you can do for me and my profit, it's what I can do for you and your family and your future and the gospel. So again, the question, what do your customers say, by the way? You're a business person, what do your customers say? It's not enough to have that, again, it's not enough to have that, hey, we're team Jesus in the window. Do you treat them with respect? Do you love them? Do you serve them? So here's the bottom line is this, when it comes, when it comes to this, it's the book of Daniel is not about dare to be a Daniel, that's not it. It's not like, dare to be a Daniel. What we're supposed to do is see that Daniel is pointing to somebody far greater than Daniel, okay? I mean, Daniel was awesome. The Bible actually says nothing bad about Daniel, which is one of the few people in there, but he's certainly not perfect. But the book of Daniel is pointing to somebody who's much greater than Daniel, who Daniel actually prophesies about in the second part of his book. It's about a savior who would come and not defile himself. And instead of getting favor shown on him, he took a curse on himself. He didn't defile himself and yet died for his sinless life. And then he offered grace and salvation to those same people that killed him. And instead of getting a good examination at the end of 10 days, it's like you're doing good, God actually raised him from the dead. That's who we're supposed to be emulating. And so there's a song that we uh, sang about six months ago or so, because this the whole thing is, is that God, once God saves you, God does send you out. And he doesn't send you out just to the cove and he doesn't send you out just to be on church staff. He sends you out into Babylon. And so what you gotta say is, you know, ask, has God saved me? Am I on team Jesus? Am I on team Jesus? And don't slough that question off just because you grew up in the South and you've been to church here 50 times. Don't slough that off. Ask the question, all right? Has there been any, when somebody looks at these areas, is there any fruit in that? 
And if not, you might have prayed a prayer, but you didn't repent. Repentance is not perfection. We say this all the time. Repentance is not perfection. But you got to hear this, brother. It is a change in direction. It is not perfection. Jesus died on the cross for our sin. But when you embrace him as your savior, it does change the direction, the trajectory in which your life goes. So have you repented and embraced him? Am I on team Jesus? If not, right where you're sitting, God, I want to repent of my sin and embrace Jesus. And the second thing you want to do is like, I want to take the challenge of being a Daniel in my place, my family. I mean, it might be as simple as getting baptized. I mean, if you can't get baptized after being on team Jesus, you're not going to stand in Babylon. When you get baptized here, what happens? Everybody stands up and cheers. Yeah. I bet you there's a hundred people right now watching and you're on team Jesus, but for whatever reason, you're like, my hair's going to get wet. And you know, there might be a little COVID floating in the water, man. There's that thing is so chlorinated. You can barely live. That thing is so strong. All right. It's not about that. It's about, you got to say the first time I'm on team Jesus. I'm on team Jesus. That starts with being baptized, but then just understand God, would you use me? Would you pour me out? Would you pour me out where I am?